Good morning. Our passage this morning is Mark 3, 7 through 35. Jesus withdrew his disciples to the lake, and a loud, large crowd from Galilee followed. They had heard all about what he was doing. Many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because the Because of the crowd, he told the disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those who had diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. When Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to those he wanted, They came to him. He appointed the twelve, that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out the demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, who he gave gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother, John. To him he gave the name Bogenesis, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Andrew, uh, sorry, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Ju- Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. When Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called to them, called them over to him, and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself... He is divided, and he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, if a people can be forgiven all of their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He is saying this because they were saying, He has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they said they sent someone in to call to him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those who seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Janine. This time, the children in grades 5 to 6 are dismissed. You did a great job there, Janine. You had some tough names, a long passage, and we decided when we started this series of messages in the Gospel of Mark that 
we would commit to reading the entire passage for that Sunday so that when the study is over, we can say that as a church, we've actually have read through the entire gospel of Mark. And uh, we were also then taking the approach that when it's a longer passage that we don't then need to preach on the entire passage. We can then maybe focus on a section within that passage. Originally, my intent was just to focus on those last about 15 verses that Janine read, and I still want to take a deeper dive there for sure, but I think there's enough important themes and lessons to learn in some of those earlier verses that I don't want to just uh, kind of blow by them. And so this morning, we're going to look at at three scenes here, and I'm going to kind of fly over the first two at about 30,000 feet, and then we're going to descend a little bit to about maybe 4,000 feet and look at a little bit more of the detail in those last few verses. So let's jump right in. Scene number one, we find Jesus at the lake. And the first uh, scene opens with Jesus actually trying to get away from the masses of people, but these large crowds were following his every move. They came from everywhere and from every direction. Jesus' popularity had continued to grow, and even though he tried to contain it, you remember a few times he'd heal somebody and say, but don't tell anybody about it. And so, um, but, but nonetheless, more and more people kept talking about what was going on, and the greater the numbers of people who then ultimately pursued Jesus and were chasing him down. And so we see here in this opening scene this, this massive crowd of people, and they're basically coming to look for only one thing from Jesus, healing, physical healing. And if they had an impure spirit, if they showed evidence of demon possession, then they expected that Jesus would exercise that demon. By this time, Jesus was expecting these large crowds. So He asked that a a small boat would be ready for him in case that he needed to create some space between himself and the crowds of people. Basically, word had spread that uh, about what Jesus had been doing and how every, um, uh, yeah, and now every sick and demon-possessed person, they just wanted to reach out and touch him because they wanted to be healed and this was going to be uh, their ticket to healing. So you can kind of get a sense or imagine the kind of pressure that was on Jesus to the point that that he's already anticipating being so crowded around that he might actually need to have a boat that he could get into and push away from shore a little bit and and hopefully the people would stay on dry land and and he wouldn't uh, kind of be pressed um, into a corner. Do you ever feel that kind of pressure? Everyone seems to want some time and attention. Your kids are sick. They want meals. They, 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 they're like running around in the morning. Mom, have you seen my backpack? They're, they're, they're all over um, just pressuring you and looking for things. Some of you know about what it means to be part of the sandwich generation. You've got kids that you're still taking care of, but your elderly parents are, are declining. Maybe you have some personal health issues. Your inbox is overflowing. You have deadlines and timelines that you're working against, and people want to see you. They want to get together with you. And you look at your week, and you're like, I don't know how I'm going to fit one more thing into my life. I think we should take great comfort in knowing that Jesus understands the pressures we face in life. And he understands because he experienced them himself. And therefore, I think it's super instructive for us to look at how he managed the demands and pressures in his life. But first, I want to look at scene two. 
Scene two now is not Jesus at the lake, but Jesus on the mountain. And verses 13 to 19, Mark records the appointing of the 12 apostles. If you notice in verse 13, if you're following along in your Bibles, that Jesus, in, in order to get away from these massive crowds that were following him, says that he went up on a mountainside and he called to him those that he wanted. He was kind of selecting out some of his disciples and they came to him. And so how did Jesus manage the pressure? Well, we see, first of all, that he went away to be alone. He just got away from it. Verse 13a, right? Jesus went up on a mountainside. The parallel passage in Luke's gospel makes it clear that, um, that he got away alone. He spent the entire night on this mountainside. And then when it was morning, he then called his disciples. And so for at least this one night, he was by himself. Vance Havner, who was widely recognized as one of America's most traveled evangelist and popular Bible conference speaker, he said this. He says, if we do not follow Christ's example to come apart, we may indeed just come apart. Fact is, we need to get away alone. We need to experience silence and solitude in our lives. And you have heard that from this pulpit many, many times, and you're going to hear it again and again because it simply is undeniable and it's an indispensable practice of the Christian faith. Silence has a way of just being able to remove us from the noisy clutter in our lives so that we can hear God a little bit easier. And and it has a way of, when we're by ourselves. It has a way of allowing us to gain perspective, to reorient us again to the things that are important in life. And without those two things, we just stay on this frantic, crazy pace because we never take the time to get away and experience some silence and solitude. And it's interesting, isn't it, that when we talk about silence and solitude, sometimes people look at you like you're a little weird, right? Have you had this experience? Like you're, like you're a little bit strange, you know, you're a mystic or you're a monk all of a sudden. What are you, what are you doing? Anne Morrow Lindbergh, in her book, Gift from the Sea, writes this. She says, anything else, meaning any other scheduled events, as she'll explain in a second, will be accepted as a better excuse. If one sets aside time for a business appointment, a trip to the hairdresser, a social engagement, or a shopping expedition, that time is accepted as inviolable. But if one says... I cannot come because that is my hour to be alone. One is considered rude, egotistical, or strange. What a commentary, she writes, on our civilization when one has to apologize for it, make excuses, hide the fact that one practices it like a secret vice. Isn't that good? It's like we we don't want anybody to really know because... Well, we live in this fast-paced, crazy world, and when you tell people that you intentionally set aside time to be alone, they look at you like you have three eyes. And so you start to apologize and excuse it, and, well, I don't do it every day, or, you know, and we just don't want others to know because we know how they're going to look at us. But Jesus didn't just get away for the sake of getting away. Because the second thing he did to manage the pressures of life was that he prayed. Again, Luke's gospel adds this detail in Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. It says, Jesus went out on a mountainside, so he got away, 
and he went there to pray and spent the night praying to God. Now, so much could be said about prayer, but one thing I want to say today is simply this, that prayer is primarily about aligning our will with God's. And so that's why you need the silence too. You're praying to God. It's not just coming to God with this long laundry list of needs and requests and just dumping them all out and saying, good, I'm done, I've prayed. But it's sitting down and spending time with God and praying to him and taking times in silence and listening to him. And suddenly, maybe some of the things that you prayed about are realigned and it's not as important as you thought it was. Something else becomes more important. Did you pray about that? And you have this back and forth. Prayer is really posturing ourselves in a way that just exposes us to God, that we develop this relationship where we're connected in a vital way. Friends, I mean, we just need to look at this. You've probably heard this a hundred times. But if Jesus had to get away and pray to his Father, how much more do we? Thirdly, he went away alone, he prayed, and he formed a community. See, this is the balance, isn't it? There are times that we need to be alone to pray, and then there are times that we need to be together with others in community to pray. And so Jesus calls the 12 apostles so that he could share the responsibility of ministry with them. If you look closely at verse 14, it says, He appointed 12 that they might be with him that they might be with him, that they would walk with him. And he invited them into relationship with himself. He wanted them to really come to know Jesus. And that's what happens when we walk with Jesus in the company of others. We learn from others, and others learn for us, and together we really get to know Jesus. You know, on this note of coming away and praying and being part of a community, we as a, as a staff have a scheduled monthly day of prayer where our ministry staff, that would be Adam and Quinn and Anne and Marnie and Cheryl and myself, we get away for a day of silence to the point that when we gather for lunch, we don't even talk. Try it sometime. Can you imagine at brunch today if we all just kind of got our meals and sat down and It would be weird and awkward, wouldn't it? But there's something about being in community, respecting their silence, their time with Jesus and not interrupting that, and them doing the same for you in mutual agreement. And so we do this. What about you? What are some of the rhythms of life that you might build into your own, in your own life? If you look at this from a, from a, from a perspective of, like on a daily basis, what can I do? Are you setting aside 10, 15 minutes? That's awesome. Can you extend it to 20 or 25? What, what daily rhythm might you find that works for you? I, I used to always, I, I was the night owl in our family. Tina has a nickname. I think she's in the kitchen. She won't hear this. 10 o'clock Tina. <clears throat> 10 o'clock rolls around, she's in bed. I'm the night owl. But you know what I'm finding? I'm finding right now in this season of my life, I'm having this total shift of going to bed earlier and getting up earlier. I can't wait for daylight savings time to end next Sunday. 
because it's dark. It's still dark at 8 o'clock. If you slept in this morning, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know that. But um, So what is the rhythm of your life on a weekly basis? Do you think about the Sabbath? Do you think about setting aside some time even this afternoon to just kind of get away, go for a walk, pray? Is that part of your rhythm of your life? Do you find a monthly thing? I told you about what we do as, as a staff. Yearly, can you get away for a two or three day silent retreat? And just find that God in those moments postures us and reorients us to gaining a whole new perspective on where we're at. Friends, it's practices like that that as we cultivate them as disciples of Jesus Christ, as followers of Jesus Christ, yes, it may seem totally countercultural because our culture can be crazy. And maybe that's what makes it radical. And that's maybe what pe- why people think it's strange. And that's maybe why it would be questioned. But find the rhythm that works for you and stick with it. Scene number three. We find Jesus now in a house. We've seen a similar scene to one that's described here back at the beginning of Luke chapter 2. You may recall that all the people were crowding around to the point that when the paralyzed man came along, his four friends were carrying him. They knew they couldn't get to Jesus, so they dug through the roof. You remember that in Luke chapter 2? Well, now here in verse 20 of chapter 3, we read that Jesus then entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Seems kind of a strange little detail that Mark adds, doesn't he? Like, why, why were they not able to eat? He doesn't really explain why. I mean, was the, the crowd interrupting them and they wouldn't let them talk? Or were there just so many people in the crowd? Was it somewhat chaotic because everybody wanted to get to Jesus and so he was just so distracted by all of the, man, the, the demands? What we do know is that word got back to Jesus' family and they had heard enough. The text says in verse 21 that they went to take charge of him. Some translations might say they went out to seize him, which is kind of a strange thing to think they're going to just grab him and seize him and take him away. But it actually carries the idea that they're going to arrest Jesus. Jesus' mother and his brothers came to Capernaum to take Jesus by force and haul him out of there and take them back home to Nazareth. Why? Because look at what they said. He is out of his mind. (laughs) This is Jesus' own family looking at the, the things that Jesus was saying, the things that he was doing and going, this man, he's totally out of his mind. He's gone crazy. He's a madman. I mean, can you imagine this? His, his family keeps hearing the reports of all of these activities and, and the things that he's saying, that he's the son of God. And, and now they hear that he wasn't even able to eat. And it's like somehow this is the final straw. Mary's like, come on, boys. Let's, we've got to go and get your brother. Enough is enough. He's embarrassing us. He's not even eating anymore because these people just won't leave him alone. And it's seems maybe kind of insignificant until you realize that in here he is in this culture where meals were like rituals and food was scarce and so not eating it was just considered insane why would you do that there's food before you and if you're not going to eat it you've totally gone too far and it was a certain sign to them that jesus is like his religious zeal had suddenly gone way too far now i'm not sure what the cultural equivalent would be today 
But if you do things that seem extreme because of your passion for Jesus, people might think you're a little crazy. Right? They look at you and they say, you know, it's okay to be devout, you know, and maybe go to church, serve in comfortable ways, maybe once a month. Just, just don't do anything radical. Like giving up a lucrative career to go serve with a mission organization in a developing country. Or going to places to serve Jesus, but some of those places are dangerous. Like selling your home. And moving into a community that, that isn't the best community, but it's a place where you can serve and meet needs there in a way that you maybe can't where you currently are. I mean, why would you do that? Jesus did crazy things like staying up all night to pray. And his family thought that they needed to step in and save him from himself. When I started university, I started in the faculty of engineering. Before I even took one class, I wanted to be, I wanted to transfer into the faculty of sciences so that I could become a dentist. My primary motivation at the time, with, with, without a word of a lie, was money. And so I had to complete my first semester in engineering because it was too late to transfer. Um, so at least I can say I, I, I was in engineering at one time. My second semester was in sciences. And I had given my life to Jesus five years um, prior to this. But at this time in my life, I really wasn't living for Jesus. I was just flat out doing my own thing. I'm almost certain that I never even prayed about what God wanted me to do with my life. I just decided what was going to be best for me. And after, and in the spring, right after my second year of university, God really got a hold of my heart. Without getting into the details, I was, what I say was a path of destruction. It was the May long weekend, 1987. I was returning on a bus from a soccer tournament in Kelowna. And God had me captive. And I remember so clearly sitting there, as you might imagine, head leaning against the window and just kind of watching the markers of the dividing of the line just go by rhythmically one after another. And just God just pursuing me relentlessly. And it was like as clear as day, Norb, you continue on this path and it's not going to end well. You know the path that you should be on. And I rededicated my life to Jesus on that, on that bus. And I came back, and it wasn't much longer after that. It was in the fall then. I'm now into my third year of university. And now I'm praying and asking God, God, is this the direction that you want for my life? And I wanted to discern that. And I sensed that the best way to do that was to quit university and go to Bible school. And I remember this. Pretty clearly, because it was shocking to me at the time, I've since have processed it, and it's, it's not nearly as bad as I think it was then. But I remember going into my dad. He was sitting behind his desk, and I said, Dad, I think I'm going to quit university and go to Bible school. He did not take that well. <laughs> and I remember being shocked. You know, I grew up in a Christian home, and if your son tells you that you want to go to Bible school, this sounds crazy. 
And I remember storming out, just being angry. I was upset. I think I was in tears. And because I just couldn't, couldn't understand it. I decided at that time that I was going to defy my dad. And I was going to quit anyways and go to Bible college starting in January of that, of that year. And I applied to Bible school. I got accepted. I was actually going to go with a friend of mine all the way to Texas. And uh, he jammed out on me about a week before we were supposed to go. And I go, I'm not going to Texas by myself. This is crazy. So I stayed in university for one more semester. It was coming up. It was the easy thing to do. And I'm trying to figure it out. And then God got a hold of me again. And it very, let me make a long story short. In the end, um, God really got a hold of my heart and said, you need to go to seminary. And I responded to a call on my life to serve Jesus in pastoral ministry. I know that's not the call for everyone. But I did that. And I remember going to the front of the church. And my youth pastor prayed with me. And he says, well, so where are you at in university? I go, well, I'm actually in my last semester. And he's like, well, you know, you can graduate with a, a university degree and go to seminary. You might have a few classes to make up, but you can just transfer. So that's what I did. And here I am. And I look over there, I see Sid, and Sid was one of my, my profs in seminary. But it was really hard to process that. And you know what? As much as I did not like my dad's answer, in the end, the ultimate wisdom was right. And I remember him saying, you know what? You can finish university and then do whatever you think you need to do. Parents, listen. If your children come to you someday and they want to do something crazy for Jesus, they've gone and they've got a professional degree, they're engineers or they're doctors or they're lawyers, and they come to you and say, you know what? I'm feeling called to to a country where I can serve with something like, you know, international justice mission. And I'm going to serve poor people in their legal cases that they're dealing with, where they're being oppressed. And I want to help set them free from those things. And they're never going to make the money that they're going to do make in a, in a big legal law firm or something in the city. But you need to say, you know what? Let's pray about that. Let's discern together if that's where God's calling you. And then encourage them if that's exactly what they're doing. But don't ever think that they're being too radical and that you need to somehow save them from themselves. But Jesus faced other opposition as well. See, the teachers of the law didn't think he was crazy. They thought he was a tool of Satan. These scribes, these highly trained legal specialists, they were sent to Jerusalem to check out Jesus and to assess the kind of danger that he was to the religious establishment. Their conclusion was twofold. First, in verse 22, it says that he, was pos- he is possessed by Beelzebul. Beelzebul was considered the lord of evil spirits. They accused Jesus of being demonized, and not just by any old, ordinary demon, but by the one that ruled over all the other demons. And then secondly, they concluded that, he says, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. And so they accused Jesus basically of being a son of Satan. They reduced him, as one commentator put it, to a demonized sorcerer. And he did perform exorcism. That was true. It was undeniable. We've already seen that a few times in these early chapters in Mark. 
And the parallel account in Mark chapter 12, verse 22 to 24, gives us more insight. This is what we read there. It says, Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? Could this be the son of God? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. You see, they simply could not deny the power, but they would not accept it as being from God. And so by default, it would have to be of Satan. Now, because they were saying this, Jesus calls them over and he asks, How can Satan drive out Satan? In other words, their accusations were illogical. For experts in the law, right, they weren't very smart. He basically comes to them and he says, you're saying these things about me, but your reasoning doesn't make any sense. Why, if I'm possessed by an evil spirit, would I be able to cast out evil spirits? And so then Jesus goes on to illustrate how absurd the accusations against him were with two hypothetical examples. He says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. The conclusion to his argument, he says, if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. And so Jesus debunks their accusations quickly and strongly. And then in verse 27, he tells them what actually happened. He says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. It's a parable. Let me explain. The strong man that he's referring to there is Satan. His house is the kingdom that he dominates here on earth. And the plunder that he's referring to are the helpless victims whom he holds in bondage through his demons. To quote commentator Kent Hughes, he says this, Only one who is stronger than Satan can free the victims, and this is what Jesus has done. Entering Satan's house, binding him, and loosing the hapless captive souls. Jesus appealed to logical argument to answer the scribes' accusations and left them virtually speechless. This is what Jesus has done. Because he is stronger, because he is greater, he has gone right into Satan's domain, he's tied him up, and he's set captives free. Captives like you and me. And when we discover that he set us free, that he's broken the chains of slavery to sin, our only response then is to receive him and to serve him. And that's why Jesus then adds in verses 28 and 29, he goes on, he says, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an an eternal sin. Now, what does Jesus mean? You probably have heard about the unforgivable sin. People always wonder what it is. Because of all the sins, the one that you want to avoid is the one that is unforgivable. Now, I'm not going to go into a a lengthy explanation, and I'll just cut right to it. The unforgivable sin is rejecting Jesus. It is the ongoing, continual rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit to the person and work of Jesus in our lives. And so if you don't know Jesus personally, 
But you know that there's a stirring inside you, but you continually ignore it. You ignore the Holy Spirit's prompting to give your life to Jesus, but you decide you don't. You are then guilty, and Jesus says, of an eternal sin, because it will haunt you forever. You can also say this, that if you've ever thought about this and you're kind of afraid that you've committed, you know, the unforgivable sin, it's probably proof that you haven't because you're responding to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life. So what do we do with this? Basically, it comes down to this. Either Jesus was a lunatic, a crazy man, like his family thought, or he's a demonic liar, like the teachers of the law said. Or, a third option, he was and is who he said he was, God, the Son of God. C.S. Lewis has this great quote in his classic book, The Case for Christianity, and you probably have heard this before if you've ever um, read any of C.S. Lewis or heard messages on this passage. It's often used, but let me read this quote. I'm trying here, he writes, to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's one thing we mustn't say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't let us come says, with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher, he hasn't left that open to us. He didn't intend to. Wow. Kind of puts it right out there, doesn't it? You see, Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he calls us to trust him, to commit our life to him, to follow him, to walk in obedience with him. And even when being a disciple of Jesus means that we might be a little radical at times, a little crazy. But maybe you're on the fence, you're undecided about Jesus, and today you have come to realize that he was not a madman or even an evil liar. He was and is God. Friends, if you believe this, can I invite you to pray this to him right now? Lord Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe that you are God. I believe that you died for my sins. I rest my hope of eternal life in you. Gracious Lord, it is an upside-down world. It can be crazy and insane. I thank you that when you stepped into history, sanity stepped into history. That when you stepped into life, sanity stepped into life. And when I follow you, 
I know that it's okay to be radical. Help me to follow you in obedience, even when you ask me to do crazy things. In Jesus' name I pray. Well, there's more in that passage. Let me just bring it home real quick. As Mark returns to Jesus' family, verse 31, they actually arrive at the house that Jesus is at, but they stay outside. Maybe they couldn't get in, and they send someone in to call Jesus out. His family, out of love and concern for him, right? They've come to take him back where he would be protected from himself and from the crowds. So the people say to Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus responds with this startling, but maybe not surprising question. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? And I suspect that this shocked everyone. You know, they're they're sitting there going, maybe he is a little crazy. Because the reason that that was so radical is that in Hebrew culture, the family was sacred. And I'm sure that everyone who heard Jesus say this was left speechless, and you could have heard a pin drop in that house. But no one said a word. No one even tried to answer his question. And then Jesus breaks into the silence, and he says as he looks around, perhaps motioning with his hand at the people that had gathered there, he says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. You see, all that Jesus was saying here was simply this, that there's a deeper relationship than even flesh and blood. Think about that. That when we accept Jesus as Lord, as God, and God as our Father, we have then a spiritual kinship because we are sons and daughters of the King. We have the same Father. And now we're brothers and sisters in Christ. The closest, it's like a spiritual kinship. Kinship is the the closest family that you can have. Like when someone is in a tragic car accident, they say, we got to notify the next of kin, the people that are closest to them. And a key component of the spiritual kinship is obedience to the Father. And this new family is far superior to our human families because it is eternal. It's the family that's going to last. And so in Christ, we belong to this new spiritual family. And perhaps you've experienced this when you've traveled to faraway places. You've gone to developing countries and everything's different. The culture, the food, the way they worship. But yet as a Christian, you instantly have this deep bond with other Christians. How do you explain that? Because we're family. We're family. We may have different colors of skin. We may have different personalities. There's so much that is so unique about all of us. And there's this great diversity at TCC. But when you boil it all down, we're family. So we care for one another and we pray for one another. That's why we gathered at a prayer summit this evening. So we can can put our arms around one another and pray for some of the needs that, that we might each be carrying. And we belong to this family. We share within this family. We partner with this family. We recognize that as a family, there's responsibilities. There's, there's, there's things to do and things to take care of. And so I'm going to stack some chairs and I'm going to grab some tablecloths. I'm going to stick my head in the kitchen. Say, hey, is there some help that's needed? 
I'm going to sign up to serve and do my part in this family. We're going to love. We're going to care for one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and just the truth of it again. Mark is so good. Just recording these details that, that help us to see. Help us to see what it means to walk with Jesus. Where we can truly give our lives to him and walk with him and walk with others in relationship. I pray, Father, that as we think about what we've heard this morning, that we would just come to that place where we just say, you know what, Lord, above all else, here, here, give, here's my heart. I give it to you. All those other desires I have, all those other idols in my life, tear them down, put them away, that I might follow Jesus passionately, radically. And if people think that I'm crazy, they'll know that I'm crazy about you. In Jesus' name I pray.